I want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today, joining us is Fahad Kawaja, who's the founder and CMO at Q. Let's jump in and get to know Fahad. How are you? Welcome. I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We're thrilled that you're joining us. And for our audience who may or may not know Hugh, tell us a little bit about Hugh. Sure. Hugh is a brand and an organization that I founded a little over a year ago, specifically focused on solving two problems or sort of needs that I kept hearing and seeing about for quite a long time throughout my career. One was the idea that a lot of C-suite executives and leaders out there were looking to recruit and to promote and accelerate diverse talent, but they kept saying that they didn't know where to find us. And the second was that the talent itself, right, people of color, people from different backgrounds, ethnically, racially, kept saying that they needed not only a community, but they also wanted access to be able to get ahead and get to the next stage in their careers and ultimately access the leadership networks that they weren't able to break through to. So Hugh was really founded to be a community to essentially answer both of those calls and really help to resolve the tension of the so-called pipeline problem, which I really describe as the myth of the pipeline problem, Mm. and ultimately address the reality of a network gap that exists for a lot of people of color who are trying to get access to opportunities and ultimately pave a path towards career growth for for themselves and for their families. That's fantastic. Uh, I love how you talk about from your childhood, sort of bridging varied social groups and working with so many different folks throughout your career. But I want to go back a little bit and ask you about about your family. Tell us about your family and tell us about your family background and where they're from. Sure. I actually grew up a little east of here. So I actually grew up around the Middle East, so a a little farther east than maybe typical. And my background's originally Pakistani, but growing up around the Middle East, I was in an environment where I was surrounded by a lot of people from different backgrounds and a lot of different countries, people who were different religions, different ethnicities. My family itself was one that moved around a little bit, not a ton when I was younger. I had an older brother and older sister. My mom was actually born and raised in Malaysia and my dad was born and raised in Pakistan. And so I'm actually a third culture kid. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar, it's that idea of people who've sort of grown up and lived in a culture that's different than their own, right? And different from where they might be kind of going to school and learning every day. And so that at a high level was sort of my background. Yeah, that's fascinating. Being that sort of third culture kid, what are some really interesting sort of lessons you learned, even from where your parents grew up and what they learned from Malaysia and from Pakistan? I think one of the earliest lessons that I learned that I probably didn't realize was a lesson at the time was just how important it is to be able to actually bridge cultures mm-hmm. and to be able to actually have not only conversations with people from lots of different backgrounds, but find a way to build relationships and create an understanding between people from different backgrounds. And that was something that, to your point earlier, served me really well. It felt really natural. I always found myself floating between these different groups, right, at a social level in school. And, you know, I had pretty strong opinions, but somehow I always managed to not maybe overly offend one group or another and and find a way to 
get to common ground. And I think that for me was just an early lesson to understand that you have to be able to see things from other people's perspectives. You have to be able to get an understanding of who they are, where they're coming from, maybe where they're trying to go, and then see where you might be able to fit in or help or play a role as well. Hmm. That's great. Tell us a little bit about your career path. You worked for some great, great companies. And now as a founder, tell us a little bit about how you got started down your uh, career path. I'm really fortunate because I have had a lot of diverse experiences. And I almost feel as though it went a bit backwards for me versus some other people that I know in the Mm -hmm. sense that actually very early on, I felt like I knew what I wanted to do. And the older I got, the less I felt like I knew what I wanted to do. (laughs) I actually, in high school, started thinking about going into advertising. And it was because somebody's dad came in for career day and basically started talking about his job. And he worked at J. Walter Thompson, which back then was a pretty big agency and you know meant a lot. And I had frankly never even heard about what advertising was. I didn't really understand it. Obviously, I'd seen ads and all of that stuff. But I didn't really know this was really a job you could have. And I loved the idea that you could blend the creative side, but still have a business side and actually make money. It was just this magical concept to me. I was like, wow, I could be creative and have all these ideas and be artistic and write and do all these different things that I really love to do and actually make money and have a job. That could be amazing. So starting out, I always planned to kind of go to college and pursue advertising. And so coming out of college... I immediately started working in advertising and in an ad agency in New York. And so I was really fortunate early on. But what I found is that over time, as I was growing from one role to another, I just had a lot of intellectual curiosity and I wanted to understand what made people tick. I wanted to understand more about human behavior and consumer behavior. And that is what ultimately led me to get my master's and be able to go to the marketer side. Because in those days, it wasn't so easy to just go from an agency to the marketer side. Things have changed, right? But I think back then it was very much about you start at the agency side and you really need to have an MBA in hand before anyone even wants to talk to you if you're interested in going to the marketer side and really drive the strategy and the consumer connectivity from that perspective. And so I sort of spent the next several years in a number of roles, first at a startup level, and then at really large companies, and then back at a startup level to kind of just continue that sort of brand focus. Now, I'm curious to hear from you, what was that point when you're like, okay, I'm working for some great brands, but now it's time for me to sort of break out on my own. Sometimes when you work for some really great companies, breaking out on your own can be a, a scary proposition but you seem to have done it. So curious to understand that from you. I think the number one thing that helped me is failure. I have failed a lot of times. And what I mean in terms of how that helped me is that when I've fallen down, I've gotten back up. Mm -hmm. And I have a really strong appetite for risk because I know that if I try something, it will probably work out It probably won't work out in the way that I expected, but at the end of the day, it will work out. And I've found that to be true from my very first job onwards, you know, because you never really know the manager you're going to get. 
You never really know the type of team you'll land into. You never really know what the business situation or what the economic situation is going to be. Within my first couple of years of being in the working world, you know, we had the financial crisis, right? At a global level, all these other things happened. There was so much change happening in the media industry, in the advertising world, on the marketing side of things. And so my whole career has been about transition and has been about problem solving and has been about finding new ways to do things. And what I found is that the more willing I was to take risks and the more willing I was to actually fail, then the more sort of resilient I would be. And so I think as it came to the point where I'd left the startup I was working at in the Bay Area and came back to New York and wanted to focus my energy on building something from a social impact standpoint, which ultimately became Hue, for me, it actually felt very natural to kind of start this new thing and just try something different because it was grounded in knowing my own capability and grounded in research and understanding what was the need, what was the problem that I was trying to solve? And was there anyone else out there that was really addressing it? And could I actually add value to it in a way that would be worth doing? And fortunately for me, I was able to do that. You know, I was able to build something that resonated with people in a way that frankly, was much bigger than I expected and much faster than I expected. And again, fortunately for me, I was able to attract a really good group of people who've come along on the journey and helped build this, this thing called Hue and build it into a community to the point where there's thousands of people that we're touching literally every single day. And we've seen people getting jobs, getting hired in you know new sorts of roles, moving from one industry to another moving into new territories where they might not have felt confidence mm. or stability before. And so for me, seeing that and hearing the stories every day and being able to partner with the people who've come along on the ride and really played an instrumental role has been really meaningful. But yeah, I think for me, it really all just started with a willingness to take risks, a willingness to fail, because the more I failed, the more I saw that it's just a necessary part of moving forward. Gotcha. Gotcha. I appreciate that. I want to go back to something I picked up on earlier when you were speaking with Eric. Myth of the pipeline problem. Explain that. Why is the pipeline problem a a myth? So for those who may not be aware, the pipeline problem that I'm referring to is the talent pipeline problem, which Mm -hmm. I think many of us, and particularly people of color, have heard senior leaders across industries, and this is across geographies, across levels, across industries, say that they don't know where the talent is. And the question we keep hearing is, where's the talent? Where are the Black people? Where are the Latinx people? Where are the people from this or that underrepresented or underestimated or historically excluded group? And the reality is that because they keep asking those questions, it sort of perpetuates what I describe as the myth, right? It's mm-hmm. that, well, if they're not somewhere that we can find them, maybe they don't exist, or maybe they're out there somewhere, but they're just so junior that we're not able to promote them into these leadership positions, right? And the reality is that we're all here. We've been here for years, and we have expertise in so many different areas. But what we often just don't have is access to those folks who are decision makers. And those decision makers often are from legacy leadership groups. And they often are just looking for talent in the same places. And it's a, it's a very, very small pond that they're fishing in time and time again. And that pond grows into a sea of sameness. And then everybody's surprised that there's no diversity. And so when I talk about 
the pipeline problem. That's the pipeline problem that I'm referring to. Yeah. If you want different results, you got to attack the challenge differently as well too, right? To your point, you can't do the same thing over and over again and expect different results if you're really trying to solve the pipeline problem, you know? So Exactly. Exactly. And I think what my premise is, and it's shown to be true with Hugh, is it really is not that hard. You know, I mean, if for years and years, they kept telling us that they don't know where to find the people. I just showed up here and I built a website and told people to sign up and people signed up. You know what I mean? It's not like I had a billion dollar marketing budget that I put behind this thing, but people signed up and they're signing up literally every single day. I mean, I mentioned thousands of people have signed up for this thing and it's it's working. And so from my perspective, it shouldn't have taken me and a core group of people coming together when there's all these companies out there spending billions of dollars. Every year, $350 billion is spent on marketing and recruiting. Where is that money going? What results is it driving? And I would say the argument is it's probably not doing very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you're probably right. And with the success that you've been having, right, and all the talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the business world these days, and, and hopefully we got a long way to go, but more people getting hired, hopefully building their careers, so on and so forth. What excites you about the future of what you're doing and the social impact that you and your company are having? Good question. What excites me is two things. One is the idea that eventually Hugh doesn't need to exist. I would love for that to be true, that you know, within a couple of years that we've sort of addressed all the problems so significantly that we don't need to exist. And we can't do it alone. There's a number of other organizations out there that are driving advocacy and are driving change in a really tangible way. So that's sort of one thing that excites me, just that idea that there could be a future that we build where we don't need to have this organization exist. The second is what I'm already seeing, which is that a lot of the conversations that I believed needed to happen a year and a half ago when I started working on this have been happening. And without question, a big part of that is because of everything that's happened since the pandemic hit and Mm -hmm. since George Floyd's death and the social movements that have kicked up and forced a lot of people who were turning the other way or who were covering their eyes to look straight ahead and, and step forward, recognizing that change is needed, right? And it's unfortunate that those things are what made people take notice. But I do believe that there are a lot more companies, there are a lot more individual leaders who are actually starting to create change. And that means creating change at their company where not only are they hiring people from diverse backgrounds, ethnically and racially particularly, but they're also making sure that their voices feel heard. They're making sure that they're not just burning people out. You know, I mean, I think the rate of burnout at this stage is higher than it's ever been. We actually published a report earlier this year by Hugh in partnership with the Harris Poll, Harris Analytics and Insights. And we tracked what the burnout levels are for people of color versus their counterparts who are not. And we looked at it for Black Americans versus Latinx Americans versus other underrepresented groups. And it was a really, really consistent trend. The burnout is much, much higher for communities of color. And it's a super consistent trend. And so I think that the fact that a lot of leaders and companies are starting to not only have conversations about all of that, that is the reality today, but that they're putting in place policies 
and that they're enforcing those policies to create change. That I think is another piece that really excites me. Fascinating. I want to ask you about other times in your career and your life where you've handled issues of discrimination. I imagine that's happened at some point. Can you tell us a little bit about when you face that, what you face and how you ultimately handled them? As I look back, there have definitely been a number of incidents, but I don't think I had the maturity or the confidence. And in particular, I don't think I had the language to be able to handle those then the way I would now. Mm. What I mean is that Back when, when I started out, and I was actually talking to a, a member of the community about this relatively recently, we were talking about how when we kind of started out in the working world, we knew that when you go to work, and if you are different than other folks, you know, in certain ways, whether it's LGBTQ or whether it's, you know, that you're an immigrant or you have an accent mm-hmm. or you are brown or black or whatever it is, you're going to stand out. And you'll probably hear some comments here and there. You hear disparaging remarks. There will be microaggressions abound. Mm-hmm. And that's just sort of the way work is, right? It's going to suck and you're going to deal with it. And that's just called going to work. We didn't actually have terms like microaggressions. We didn't actually know that there is sort of a right way and a wrong way to do things because that was just going to work. So as I look back, there have been so many instances where my voice wasn't heard Mm -hmm. or I was told to be quiet, right? Or quite literally an idea that I had when it was brought up by someone else five minutes later in the same room was a brilliant idea. Yet when I brought it up, no, completely not feasible. You're crazy, right? Yeah. A lot of gaslighting, a lot of sort of your expertise is not your expertise. A lot of you don't actually have the value that we know you have. So I don't think I was ever in a position where I was prepared to know what to do about that. I always sort of learned afterwards what has sort of happened. And, you know, as I look back in a more mature position today, I start to see it. I think what's great though about a lot of the generations coming up now is that they can see it, right? And they Mm -hmm. do have language for it. And they are able to actually have systems and structures in place to combat that, right? At a policy level, at a systemic level, and at the level where I would say people of my generation are folks in charge now, right? And are able to hopefully create environments that do allow people to have space to feel protected, feel like they can have a voice that actually matters and carries weight. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, I think, the way you just thought about it and explained it too, right? Because when you're going through it early in your career, you don't have the language to handle it. But yet, somewhere, sometimes growing up, there's been influences or a way that you just develop a callus to it, or you develop just a way to move forward and go through it. I think it's fascinating to think about it from that perspective then, and then even where it is now, right? I want to ask you about folks who help you to sort of navigate those kinds of things. Where do you think you learned some of that from? Was it through your family or friends or who were folks that helped you to develop that sort of mental and even emotional strength to get through those things? I think some of it is definitely cultural. I'm South Asian, you know, I grew up Muslim. And I think there's certain things where culturally you you sort of grow up and are very focused on the good and unfocused on sort of moving forward and not being deterred by certain setbacks. I think part of it also is a bit of an immigrant mentality. It's sort of the challenger mentality, right? Where you know there's going to be setbacks, you know there's going to be obstacles in your way, and you just have Mm -hmm. to be that much better 
than the next person or than the challenge that's coming your way. I think it was just sort of a mix of that cultural and immigrant experience and just knowing that you have to do that. I think part of it also was that piece I mentioned earlier around being surrounded by people from so many different backgrounds, right? And not necessarily being a chameleon per se, but being able to see, I'd say from a broader lens, what people might be thinking, how they might be looking at you and having that self-awareness, I think has really, really helped as well. Because if you don't have that self-awareness, then you don't really understand the impact you're having on people, whether it's good, whether it's bad, or whether it's somewhere in between. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your personal experiences with us. That's it's really important to share those. And, and we thank you for that. I'm curious about people in your life, like mentors or or even folks that you work with, right? Who are some of those people that helped you along your career? And thinking about it now, how do you take what you learned from them and pass that on? I think there's been a few people that jump out throughout my career. I would say I've had less formal mentors and more maybe informal mentors, people that I sort of took different nuggets from throughout my career. Mm -hmm. So for example, my very first full-time job out of college, I was working in advertising and my department head at the time just had a really great way about her. She was just sort of cool and confident. Everyone sort of described her as tough, but fair. And I think that was just a really great way to describe her because she expected a lot from her team. She asked for a lot, but she was really warm. She was really someone who I think valued the team's contributions. And so I always think about that in terms of, okay, what kind of leader do I want to be? And the flip side is there was someone else that I worked with at that same company who was just the opposite and was actually a big reason that I ended up leaving that company. And I always think, about not only who are the mentors, who are the people who have shown me what kind of leader I want to be and how I can be successful, but the people who showed me what I don't want to be and how I don't want to be remembered. I feel like I often learned a lot more from them. So I wouldn't quite call them mentors, but I do think that throughout your experiences, you kind of navigate the good and the bad and you, you take the pieces that you feel like are going to be helpful. And for me, some of the pieces that were most helpful for my early days were definitely, who are some of those people where I feel like, I don't want to emulate and what's that going to look like? Mm-hmm. And then I would say later on, you know, some of the people that really had a very positive influence on me were folks when I worked at Johnson & Johnson. You know, when I joined the team in Dubai, it was the first time I really worked full-time in the Middle East. And the company was going through so much change. And I was brought in to really help sort of figure a lot of things out that we'd never done, right? And drive them into the digital world and build this kind of ecosystem that would help accelerate the growth of the brand and create a brand that was going to be resonant for folks across 20 plus countries. It's a really difficult thing to do. And I had a director at the time who was my department head at the time as well, just an absolutely fantastic guy where whether it was for a signature or something more serious, whenever you walked out of his office, you just felt better. And I often think about that as well. You know, how can I make it so that at the end of your interaction that you have with me when you're on my team, you actually feel better, whether it's a small interaction or something that's a little more in depth or more formal. And I don't know that every time I'm able to achieve that, but those are some of the things that sort of hit me early on when I, when I thought about the type of leader I want to be and and how I want to conduct myself. And I think some of those people are also people who brought me along. You know, that, that very first person I mentioned. 
you know, she gave the go ahead to hire me at my very first job, right? And then the director that I mentioned at J&J, you know, he was one who, when I said, listen, I want to eventually move back to the US and I want to transfer over, he was so, so supportive, you know, and it wasn't something people were doing very much at the time when you were in the Middle East business, you weren't really moving to the US business. It, it sounds really basic, but it just, it wasn't happening back then. But he was so supportive and he said, well, here's how we can go about doing it. Here's what you need to do. Let me see how I can help. Even at later stages, when I was interviewing for new roles within J&J and thinking about next steps, he was someone there who kind of guided me and kind of gave me the background on, well, here's what you need to know about this person and that person. And here's how you can be thinking about things a little differently. So I think he was also just a really, really key person that I continue to kind of think about really positively. Yeah, I think it's fascinating as I hear you describe it, because we've heard from so many guests about people who've influenced them like that, not quite being a formal mentor, but the impact is big, right? And we learn so much from other people on how we can be to others when both influenced positively and even negatively. So thank you for sharing that because I think there's not enough discussion around people who can influence you, indirectly mentor you, and it's through our lens, it's through our eyes, it's through our experiences. So that's fascinating. Thank you. Absolutely. And I think one other influence I would say is just what we spoke about before. It's it's your sort of family upbringing, right? So it's not about mentors in that sense from a professional standpoint, but when I look back at my parents, right, and the things that they believed were important and the things that they stood for, integrity was really, really important. Making sure that you were honest was really important. Having really, really clear principles was really, really important. And so those are things that, again, I think for me were really foundational before I even got to the working world. And I'm sure a lot of the principles that that you have have carried over into the business that you launched, right? And, and I'm curious to hear from you, if there's anyone that's out there listening right now that's thinking about launching their own business because it aligns with their principles, their values, their beliefs, what advice would you have for them? <laughs> um, <laughs> the advice I would have for someone who's looking to launch their own business is make sure that you have partners. And again, that doesn't necessarily need to be formal partners, but it's really important to have people who you can lean on for support, who can help you along the way. You know, I I don't think any of us can get to where we are alone. And every step that you take forward, if you're moving towards a destination, have other people with you who either have been there or who can help guide you along the way is really, really important. And so I would say the number one most critical piece for someone who's starting something new is don't go it alone. Really tap into other people, not only for their expertise, but for their insight. Tap into people who know you, who know your personality, who know your capability, who can both be cheerleaders, but also not be afraid to knock you down and say, you know what, what you're talking about doesn't really make sense. And maybe here's how it could be better, you know, because I think Mm -hmm. you need those honest people to challenge you. But at the same time, those folks who are going to support you in various ways, not only in terms of skills, but also in terms of just helping to light the way as you take a step forward in your path. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Now, fun question that I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, which is to give us the top three apps on your phone that you use on a regular basis, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Those are too too general. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, top three apps. So probably the most used app other than the ones that you just mentioned is YouTube. <laughs> There is a lot of YouTube and YouTube is always recommending all sorts of stuff. I think of, of the entire internet and all the data that they have on me out there. YouTube knows me better than anyone. It's always recommending the right, whether it's music videos, TV shows. I get a lot of Amber Ruffin and The Daily Show and a lot of other stuff out there that's just coming at me. Plus, it's a great way to just stay connected to content from a brand standpoint and just see what sorts of things are out there that are driving culture. So I, I'm pretty connected on YouTube. A second is Spotify. I am a massive music fan. I'm guessing you probably hear that one a lot. But yeah, Spotify is big for me. Just, you know, various playlists. I love that. And then the third, which is actually where Spotify also comes in handy, is is actually City Bikes. So in New York, there's a local bike system. And so you can often find me biking around the city. I'll usually just grab a bike from a nearby dock, wherever I am in the city, whether it's Brooklyn or Manhattan, I'll usually just hop on a bike. It's pretty much the fastest way around most of the city, right next to the subway. In some cases, it's actually much faster than the subway, depending on where you're trying to go. So I'd say that's probably the third most frequently used. Amazing. Fahad, thank you so much for sharing those with us. Tell us where our audience can actually follow you and stay in touch and and be able to connect with you. Your audience can find me on LinkedIn. So it's just my name, Fahad Khwaja, on LinkedIn. And they can also find me on Clubhouse. I am not the most active on Clubhouse, but it's something that I've been using a little more lately. I really love the ability to just be able to connect with people from all sorts of places, not having a barrier. No one's really worried about what they look like or there isn't too much fanfare. And it just seems like it sort of democratizes access for everyone to have a conversation and to reach people that they might not typically reach and to see and hear ideas. So yeah, the the final piece is really, I'd say Clubhouse is a good place to find me and, and follow along as well. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. And we learned a lot. We learned about how sort of failing is a necessary part of moving forward, which is really important. We also learned about the sort of myth of a pipeline problem. And we appreciate you sharing that with us and a whole lot more. So thanks for joining us again. And thanks to our audience again for listening to another episode. And you're able to find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks again, Bob. Thank you.